The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The eminence of Job lies in the fact that his sacrifice is different, not in degree but in kind from that of those around him. This man's mission was simply to bear. Welcome back to Revive Thoughts. We've been on a short break, but we are excited to bring you uh, a whole nother season of great sermons. Uh, a few announcements up at the top of the show. To those of you who were asking, we do have some t-shirts coming on the way. Uh, there's a few final things that are being put in place. Uh, I have a, I have a, 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 t- a demo, a test product that's being shipped to me so I can ensure it's, a, it's good quality before it's made public. But we do have t-shirts coming on the way for those of you who want some merchandise. We also are excited to announce that we have a Patreon, so those of you who would like to support the show can now donate a few dollars to do that. We also have a YouTube channel now. We are putting up all the episodes in Season 1 onto this YouTube channel, so if some people you know may be more interested in watching it, uh, we put beautiful B-roll footage behind it so they can watch something, listen to the sermon, listen to the episode. It's a great time. We also have little short clips we have of old radio evangelists like Leonard Ravenhill and all these great old speakers and evangelists that used to be on the radio. We've been putting their clips out on our channel too for you to listen to. Lastly, we are now a part of striving for eternity it is a christian podcast community and what this means is they were a, a group of people who reached out to us said that they really enjoyed the direction revive thoughts was going we we liked the way they sounded so we're gonna work together and partner up here they're gonna help us get more speakers on the show have more sermons available and uh, likewise maybe we'll have some opportunities to be on their shows and tell people about the things going on at revive thoughts and this is just a great partnership for us and a good one for you as the listeners because it allows us to to make more episodes of the show. And lastly, uh, we just want to thank everyone for the support. For those of you that have found the show and that enjoy listening and come back to hear more episodes, we are blown away about you know the community that has developed around Revived Thoughts uh, and the ways that people have been sharing it, and uh, it's been super encouraging to see. Yeah, from personal notes where people have told us how the sermon has meant something to them to uh, seeing the show grow even while we weren't producing episodes. We would see links and shares go up on Facebook and Reddit. This stuff is great and the show is growing thanks to your guys' hard work. And thank you and please just continue to do that so we can continue to make this show for you guys. All right, on with the show. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is entitled, The Patience of Job. It was written by George Matheson, and it was preached in October of 1885 in the presence of Queen Victoria. Today's episode uh, actually came as a recommendation from my wife. (laughs) My wife um, is a very talented pianist and conductor, and she was doing some research into a, a, a man from the 1800s named George Matheson. 
and she would call him a, a songwriter, a hymn writer, but well, we would call him a, a pastor. And, you know, that's one of the things that we come across time and time again on the show is that a lot of these great men from, from the past uh, also wrote music. They were creative. They, they created songs and music. You know, we, we, we uh, had an episode on John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and George Whitfield, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Like, these, these people were also creative, and, and they, they made music. And I feel like that is something that is kind of, is, is not a part of, of a lot of modern day pastors. It's, it's something that um, has kind of faded with time. But she was telling me George Matheson was this preacher in Scotland. And what's more is that he was blind. By the age he was 20, he was completely blind, but he was an incredibly talented songwriter and, and preacher. And in 1885, he preached a sermon on the Queen's request, and it was on the patience of Job. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic coming from a blind man, someone that has, has experienced tribulations and hard times, uh, to preach on someone who's experienced, uh, hard, I, I feel like he can relate with that and understand that, uh, than most of us can. And the queen was so impressed by it that she ordered the sermon to be recorded and put into her personal library. And this is all well documented. And so my wife said, you know, this sounds like something up your alley. And I said, absolutely. So I, I told Troy about it. And for those of you who don't know, Troy is an incredible researcher. He does 99% of all the researching of the old sermons that go on this show. Uh, and so... I can jump in. So I did what I... I did. I went to the, you know, best resource we have available, Google. And <laughs> I just typed in the patience of Job, George Matheson. And nothing came up. I did, it took me, I want to say probably hours to just kept Googling, 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 which is very common. Um, when I wanted to find a sermon by Hudson Taylor or some of these other famous preachers that are a bit harder to find, it takes a while usually to find them. So I ended up finding newspaper clippings, but never could find anything other than this one library in the University of Glasgow, which said it had one copy left. So I shot them an email. I said, "Hey, could we, you know, could we use that sermon for our show?" They said, "Absolutely, no problem. You know, copyright and all that's dead on it. You can do whatever you want. You just got to pay us a little bit." We sent them the money, and the sermon came in. Sent it through some processors. Before you know it, we had a word document, and we have, for the first time in a very long time, this sermon that has that was once given to pretty much everybody in the United Kingdom. And then was just forgotten as these things happen. And now it's back and people can read it and can listen to it. And it's coming back live for the first time in like a hundred years, which is really fantastic. And like Joel said, maybe the best person to understand the story of Job is someone who had something taken from them, which in his, this, in George Matheson's case, it was his sight. And uh, he was a Scottish minister. He was blind. And, and we say blind, we think about all the many troubles and tribulations that somebody who's blind goes through today. It's a tougher life, I would argue. But imagine going through that in the 1800s. You know, for research for this episode, I was just curious, when was Braille invented? And it was in the early to mid-1800s. I don't think it really made it to Britain until like the 1850s, 1860s. He would have been growing up in this era without the, with just barely learning about this new language that had just showed up called Braille, you know, seeing dogs and the, all the things that we have modern 
things that would help somebody who's blind weren't there yet, weren't ready yet. Uh, but he, to get back to get to some facts, he was born in Glasgow in 1839. He dies in 1906, and he lived through the Victorian era. And despite being blind, he was an excellent student. Despite having trouble reading, he would, uh, when he was younger and could see a little bit better, he'd always sit close to a window for extra light. He had these just gigantic, probably comical in some sense, glasses to help him see. And he did his best in school. And when he became blind, he just required help from others, especially his older sister would read books to him, make sure he could get his paper turn in, translate what he was saying on the paper. And uh, because of this, his sisters actually all learned Greek and Hebrew and Latin and these other languages too, to help their brother become the best preacher he could be. Yeah, but eventually the sisters grew up and they got married. And when he was 40 years old, his last sister was married off. And it, it was it was a, a, a day of mixed emotion because he was very joyful for his sister, but um, also realized that he's, he's kind of on his own now. He doesn't have help in the house uh, which which was a huge part of him learning all this. So he, he kind of had to tackle life with a new independent outlook due to his blindness. And that's when he wrote, uh, the, the hymn he's probably most known for is, Oh Love That Will Never Let Me Go, um, although he did write several hymns. Yeah, he said he was just sitting there and he was struggling and uh, just thinking about his life and everything that was going on. His family had gone off to do some celebrations with the sister. And he was. Just, he said it was one of the darkest moments of his life. He was wrestling before God. And then the whole hymn just came to him. He said it was unlike anything else he'd ever written. He didn't have to rewrite it. He didn't have to make any changes. Hardly anything happened to it. And he said the whole process took no more than five minutes. He suddenly was just struck by the hymn. He wrote it down. He put his pencil down five minutes later, and the hymn was done. It was ready. And again, this hymn would be the one that he would be far and away most famous for. Yeah, as I mentioned, it was in October of 1885 that he was invited to preach to Queen Victoria, and this sermon that we're about to listen to moved her so much that she had it published and sent out to everyone in the town, and she also kept a, a personal copy in her library, which is really the only reason that we still have it today, is because it was preserved and copied down over the years. If she didn't order it to be copied down, it's very likely that it would have been completely lost to time. So this sermon that was once famous, known throughout the world, you know, the clipping that I read, the review of it was from Australia. There was an Australian writer who had listened to him. He came back to Australia and said, guys, you got to hear this sermon that I heard over, um, I, that I heard over there in Scotland. And, and it's coming back, but it's on the topic of Job. And I always find the topic of Job very tough personally. Um, I've never really understood or liked Job that much, if I can be honest. From the first couple of chapters when Satan goes before God and tempts, that part's really great. And I also really love the end when God comes in and speaks and clarifies. But man, that, that in between, you know, chapters four through 30 yeah. something, yeah. it is really a struggle for me. And I don't really like Job. <laughs> Yeah. And, and his defense, his whole, I'm, you know, I've read commentaries. I've really tried to understand him. And when I listened to the sermon, I kind of got it for the first time. I feel like I finally understood what it was Joe was saying, what was really going on here. And we're really hoping that you listen to the sermon and it will shed some light for you what was going on too. Of all the characters of the Old Testament, it has always seemed to us that Job comes nearest to the type of the Messiah. We have always felt that nowhere is the Christian service so eminently prefigured as in the narrative of that wondrous life. It is not that Job is the best of the Old Testament characters, 
is not that he is represented as having achieved a greater work in the world than his contemporaries or forerunners. As we shall see in the sequel of The Reverse, this is true. The eminence of Job lies in the fact that his sacrifice is different, not in degree but in kind from that of those around him. He is the New Testament and the Old. All the other old characters of the Old Testament are men of action. This man's mission was simply to bear. Enoch was a beautiful soul, a soul so beautiful that he was considered worthy to have his memory perpetuated forever, not to see death. But Enoch's life was a walk with God, a life of practical action. Elijah was a grand spirit, a spirit so grand that he was deemed worthy to be translated in a chariot of fire. But Elijah's whole life was a life of fire, of burning energy. Noah was a noble heart, so noble that he was held worthy to be lifted above the floods of human affliction. But Noah was the most practical of shipbuilders. His work of faith was a work of commonplace toil. Abraham was a heroic spirit, so heroic that he bore the title of the friend of God. But Abraham's essential mission was the founding of a kingdom. Moses was a great presence, so great that he touched the very rim of the divine splendor. But the essential work of Moses was the promulgation and the enforcement of a very prosaic law. All of these were men of action. But this man, Job, belongs to a different order from any of these. He is nearer to the type of Christ, the type of Gethsemane. His life is essentially a barren. If it were asked, what did he do in the world? We are bound to answer, he did nothing. He came into the world for the purpose not of doing, but of bearing. His mission, like that of the Son of Man, was to empty himself, just to stand and get the beautiful robes taken off one by one until life for him should have lost all its adornments. The history of Job is the history of a gradual disrobing. The process begins with the outer robe, that of worldly possessions. By a stroke of evil fortune, his wealth is swept away, and the abundance of former years ceases to flow, but he doesn't faint. Then comes the taking off of an inner robe. The loss of worldly wealth is followed by the loss of friends. There is something strangely modern in the manner in which the bereavement is suggested. His family circle used to meet together once a week in the house of each of his sons. We all know the power of these festive family gatherings. Many a man has been obliged to discontinue them just through the pain of association. It has been so hard to see the old Christmas chair left vacant and to miss the ring of voices that once welcomed the opening year. All this Job has to bear. One by one, the friends of former days depart until at last he finds himself alone. Still, he doesn't faint. Then comes the removal of a robe more inward still. His own health is taken. At first sight, it might seem an anticlimax. Isn't the loss of health inferior to the loss of friends? Yes, if it had been presented as an alternative calamity. But it did not come as an alternative. It came after the bereavement. And so it made the bereavement more difficult to bear. When the sun is low, the gloomy landscape looks all the more gloomy. When the system is low, the calamities of life seem more calamitous. Strong health may shake off the burdens of the hour, but they press with tremendous force upon the weakened frame. The disease that fell on Job increased his previous calamities by revealing them through a darkened medium. But even then, he didn't faint. His heart never for a moment wavered from its strong allegiance. His spirit never for an hour lost hold of its serene. Will we receive good at the hand of God? And will we not receive evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then came the calamity of calamities, the friends. And for the first time, the patience of Job seems to give way. 
You have seen a cloud that has hovered overhead all the afternoon and yet refused to descend in abundant rain, unlocked at last by the freezing vapor. So it is with Job. Up until now he has kept his grief unspoken and locked within his heart and men see nothing but the cloud which does not fall. But what the heat could not do, the cold did. This man had borne impoverishment, had borne bereavement, had borne that crushing of the spirit which adds to the pain of bereavement and had stood unconquered by the fire. But when that freezing thing came called the lack of sympathy, when he was brought into contact with the coldness of human hearts, the cloud of his sorrow, which had so long retained its load in silence, could bear it no more, and it broke out in a storm of tears. The explosion is simply terrific. We do not allude to the prayer for death in chapter 3. That is a prayer, and there is not even an appearance, a denunciation of the justice of God. It is when the friends have spoken. It is when their ominous silence has been broken by a speech still more ominous than the cloud of Job's heart. It gives way and refuses any longer to hold its grief. Don't tell him that he had deserved it. He had not deserved it. He could point to his past life as proof that he had no, in no respect been to blame for his calamities. Didn't that life testify to his virtues? Hadn't he been known as the father of the poor? The blessing of him that was ready to perish had come upon him and he had caused the heart of the widow to sing for joy. He had been eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. None had approached him and had been sent away empty. No doubt he had sinned as other men had sinned, but conceding this, what was he that he should be made a mark to the Almighty? Was he the only sinner in the world? Were there not men as bad as his friends had painted who were overlooked by the divine judgment? No. Was it not a notorious fact that such men occupied the places of highest power, that the earth was given over to the hands of the wicked? If he suffered above the average, it was certainly not because of the average he had sinned. If the value of virtue was the outward prosperity it could bring, he had washed his hands in innocence and cleansed his heart in vain. Such is the spirit of Job's answer to his friends. It is great and exceedingly bitter cry. And now the question which rises up in our hearts is this. Why should this man be called patient? It has become proverbial to speak of his patience. His name has come down to us as a type of steadfast endurance. Yet in the light of this bursting rain cloud, one asks, Why? No doubt he has borne much. He has endured those things in low spirit, which in the eye of the world are the hardest things of all to bear. But all the more it is remarkable that his silence should have conquered at last by a circumstance which in the eye of the world is comparatively light and insignificant. He has passed unburned through the thunder, the earthquake, and the fire, where he should have been vanquished by the still small voice, and where, above all, seeing that still small voice has vanquished him, should his name be any longer handed down as a synonym for unbroken fortitude. So why should we speak of the patience of Job? Now, in opposition to this view, we desire to show that the patience of Job was never so conspicuously displayed as it was in that very outcry in which he seems to go against his character that nowhere does he approach so nearly to the type of life of Christ as just in that act of seeming insubordination which appears to divorce him from the spirit of Gethsemane. And in the first instance, we would direct attention to the fact that so far was Job's outcry from being a falsification of his patience, that it was actually dictated by it. It was his patience that made him cry out. He cried out in the interest of patience. His friends wanted to rob him of his intellectual patience. It is simply trust the power to wait without a reason. The friends of Job denied that in religious life man had any right to that, and they came to Job and said, 
it is not enough for you to believe that somewhere, somehow, your calamity has its root in God. You must be able to trace the how and the where in your own life. It is not enough for you to rest resignedly under the divine shadow and believe that sometimes light will arise out of darkness. You must be able to tell why the darkness is here at all. Depend upon it. There must exist in your life some special sin which has called down this penalty from heaven. It is your duty to search out the impediment that prevents you from entering into joy, to put your hand upon that dark spot which is cast over your whole being, the shadow of the wrath of God. Do not imagine that the spirit of such talk has become obsolete. The friends of Job have their parallel to modern times. There are perhaps few of us who cannot point to some comparable experience. You can remember a day when the shadow of a great tragedy hung over your dwelling, and when within the chamber of desolation you sat disconsolate and alone. Suddenly, the solemn bell rang, and into the scene of your solitude their figures entered, draped in black, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They took your hand and said, My friend, God has afflicted you for a special purpose. He is dealing with your soul in retribution. You have been living too much for the present world. You have been settling on the sand. You have been seeking to build your temple on the mountain of your own vanity. God has refused to allow you to build. He has come himself to punish you, to chastise your forgetfulness, to inflict upon you the just penalty of loving the creature more than the creator. Humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God and acknowledge that you have sinned. What did you say under these circumstances? What could you say but repeat the spirit of Job's reply? Am I bound to take such a view? In a world where notoriously God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, am I bound to hold that my grief has come to me on the ground of some special sin? Will I not be allowed to keep my patience? Will I not be permitted to wait for God without a reason, to believe in God without a vision? I am unable to trace his hand in this matter. Will I not be allowed to believe that his hand exists, whether I can trace it or not? To trust him in the darkness, to feel him in the silence? I will not accept your solution of the mystery of my sorrow. I prefer it should remain a mystery. I prefer to keep undimmed that patience which can endure as seeing him who is invisible. And the motto of my heart and life will be, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Remember that if Job had been conscious of the special sin which his friends imputed to him, his suffering so far from eating patience might have been a positive solace. Remorse craves a penalty. George MacDonald in one of his fictions has the incident of a boy who robbed an orchard and then struck with remorse went to the chief gardener and said, I stole apples. Beat me. The picture is true to the deepest instincts of human nature. The remorseful conscience wants to be beaten. Tell it that the outward sufferings of life have been sent to it as a reparation of the past, and it will no longer need patience to bear them. It will receive them as medicine. But Job could not take that medicine. He was not conscious of any crime which could have made his outward sufferings a comfort. He had to be content with patience. Unconsciously to himself, this man was prefiguring the human cross of the divine man, Jesus Christ. He was saying to the Father, Behold, you come to me in clouds. The hosannas are hushed. The palm leaves are withered. The friends of summer days have made their flight in the winter. Men want me to trace you. Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that hit you? But I will not trace you. The cup which my father has given to me to drink, will I not drink it? I come to you in the clouds. I seek you through the dark and through the cold. I throw myself unreservedly into the arms of your mystery. I cannot accept men's solution of it, but I accept itself. 
I cannot trace, trace your footprints in the snow, but I hear the bells ringing across the snow, and I am content to wait for your footprints. I hold fast by the chain that binds my life to yours. The intermediate links are hidden from me, but I know that the final link is held by you. I feel the tremor of your love all down the chain. I only reclaim the right to know you in it, and I ask no more. The darkness, though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. That was the patience of Job. That was the patience of the Son of Man. But we ask you to consider yet again that in point of fact there can be no patience without a certain amount of inward outcry. In other words, that the value of a man's endurance consists in the painfulness at that which he has to endure. The patience of Job is in this respect a new type of patience. The old type was Stoicism. The spirit of Stoicism existed long before the sect of the Stoics, and it proposes a mode of patience in which the cure was worse than the disease. It said, if you will only practice the crucifixion of your feelings from day to day, if you will only strive habitually and persistently to keep down the emotions of your heart, you will find that in due time the emotions of the heart will die. You will be able to meet the calamities of life without a groan, and men will look with surprise at the power of your endurance. Now that promise is quite true. Let a man but strive habitually and persistently to crucify his emotions, and long assuredly he will have no emotions to crucify. He will succeed in encountering life's disasters without a twinge of mental pain. But let no man call this patience. It is not patience just because it has no outcry, because it experiences no resistance from anything in human nature. We are often called to admire the fortitude with which some beings are able to sustain without wincing some of those little physical operations to which flesh goes through. But before we can grant this praise, we want to know something more. Was the nerve touched? Was there any nerve at all? Was the subject sensitive to the feeling of pain? The touch of a pin may cause more suffering to me than the greatest wrench does to you. And in any estimate of patience, the amount of actual suffering must be taken into account. Or if we pass from the physical into the moral world, do we not often see exhibited precisely the same spectacle? How often are we asked to behold the fortitude of one struck by tragedy, one over whom all God's waves and billows seem to have rolled simultaneously, and who yet preserves a tranquil, unbroken calm? We are told to see in such a spectacle an evidence of divine resignation, of the power of a spirit completely surrendered to the will of God. It may be so. We are in no position to deny it. As little, however, we are yet in a position to agree to it. Here again, as in the case of the physical operation, we want to know something more before we will consent to write our eulogy. Did these tragedies strike home to the center of the man's heart? Did they take away those objects on whom his heart rested? No. Are we quite sure that the man had a heart at all? That some other form of loss would not have affected him more deeply? There are many who would grieve more over the loss of a hundred pounds than over the removal of a friend. Let us measure each man's patience by the value he sets on the object from which he has parted. That at all events is the divine principle of measurement. The crosses of God press home. They fall upon the vital part. The psalmist says that he would find God even on the wings of the morning. It seems to us that it is on the wings of the morning that God always finds us. Where do the wings of the morning alight? Is it not on the highest peaks? They begin by setting fire to the prominent heights. They leave their earliest glow on the summits of the mountains. So is it with the fires of God. They fall upon our strong points. They touch our greatest desires. Abraham is called to part not with Ishmael, but with Isaac. Isaac is called to sacrifice the interests not of Jacob, but of Esau. Jacob is called to surrender not Reuben, but Joseph. 
Nothing can be the test of our patience but that which raises the inward outcry, that which comes on the wings of the morning. You are crying for a changed cross. You say that any other cross would be less hard to bear. Of course it would. That is the reason you do not get it. God loves you so well that he can accept from you no superfluous gift. He must have the gift of your heart. Only the root of your patience can refute the challenge of the adversary. Does Job serve God for nothing? It is this inward outcry then which makes the patience of Job so glorious. Its value lies in the fact that it is not mere stoicism, no, no product of a heart which has lost its power to feel, that it comes from the depth of a spirit whose intensity of life is unimpaired. And here again it is that the suffering of Job comes into union with the sufferings of a loftier spirit and becomes the type and symbol of the gospel day. Why is it that the sacrifice of Christ has been a source of attraction to men of every age and every time? Why is it that those divided upon every other point of doctrine have found a common meeting place in the admiration of the great act of self-surrender when the Son of Man closes life on earth? It is because the surrender was a sacrifice. It is because as we follow him into his lone Gethsemane, as we stand beside him under the pale stars of heaven and witness the struggles of his soul, as we see his sweat drops falling to the ground and hear the bitter cry, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, we awake to the perception that this is patience. We feel that we are in the presence of no unfeeling consciousness which has eliminated the sense of pain, that we are confronting no withered life which has given itself up only because this joy of summer has passed. We feel that we are standing side by side with a real sacrifice with one in whom life is still fresh and green and in whom the desire for life is still strong and vivid. We feel that which we, he has given is not given because it's superfluous, because it is useless, because it is no longer available. We recognize by the very depth of the struggle the preciousness of the gift bestowed. We perceive that if it had been possible with honor, possible within the limits of love, possible in consistency with the salvation of mankind, the Son of Man would have desired that the cup should pass from him, and we bound down before that mighty patience, which in that presence of that desire could yet give his life to God. We realize that in this case, as in the case of the ancient patriarch, the strong crying and tears with which the soul is poured forth is just the element which gives efficacy to the spectacle of endurance, for it is precisely the element which above all others proves that he loved not life the less, but the Father of spirits more. The patience of Job is the patience of Christ. Stand then where Job stood, under the shadow of Gethsemane, side by side with the Son of Man. For remember that after all, the patience of Job is the patience of hope. Wherever love is, there is no despair. There is kind of withered peace, a stoic peace, a peace of autumn leaves, a peace where rustling ceases not because the winds have lost their power, but because life has lost its sap. That is not the patience of hope. It is the patience of despair. But if love be there his love, that under the shadow could keep the heart undimmed, that under the wintry sky could preserve the summer foliage green, then come what may. Though cloud rise on cloud and night come down without a star, already above the heights of Calvary, there will gleam the sun-fit peaks of Olivet. And beyond the veil of death will shine the glory of the resurrection day. Love is the prophecy that the night is not eternal. And he that listens to love amid the cold heart hears already the song of the swallow that tells the summer is near. For the patience of Job is the patience of hope.
George Matheson kind of got to the idea that I had always struggled with Job with. The idea where Job basically says, hey, I'm righteous. This thing that God's doing, I don't deserve it. I want to see my creator face to face, but otherwise I'm not going to, you know, there's nothing to repent from. And there's that part of me that goes, well, everybody sinned. So he has to repent of something. And yeah, okay, you know, and I, that always got to me where I was like, okay, Job, you're no more righteous than anybody, but that's not the point. In actuality, the reason, I love that he says the reason Job is patient is because no, he understood that God had a bigger plan at work. The reason Job was tempted was because God originally says he is more righteous than everyone else. And Satan says, because he made his life so good, right? So he actually, God was bragging on Job. Job was right to stand his ground. He just wanted a face-to-face with his creator. That's what made him patient. And I love also the part where he says, like, the only thing that broke his patience was his friends basically bad-mouthing him. And that's where he just kind of lost his cool. The thing to me that I love, too, is he, he loses his patience when his, fr- his friends start talking. You know, the, the pain and trouble that Satan brought to his life wasn't so bad as what his friends ended up doing to him by just basically talking and not knowing what they were saying. All of that was great. I thought that George Matheson did an amazing job with this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Thede. Jonathan Thede runs the Book It podcast. They review books. Yeah, I was recently on an episode of the Book It podcast talking about a book on Charles Spurgeon's sermons. It's a fantastic episode, really lovely interview, and we love Jonathan Thede. He did an earlier episode for us on Johann Tauler, and we hope he will continue to do many more with us. Yes, please also visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of the episodes here at Revive Thoughts. We said at the beginning of this episode that we have a lot of new things coming your way between the YouTube channel, the Striving for Eternity, the Patreon, the new merchandise. We're really excited. And we, again, really appreciate the shares, the different notes that you sent us, and the many of you who have stepped up and said, I want to do a sermon. I want to speak on this show with you. Please continue to send those emails to us at revivethoughts at gmail.com so that we can continue to make more episodes of the show. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.